It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 244, May 1st, 2011. We'll all go around shouting, Mayday, Mayday. Recorded April 29th. Social media, Twitter, Facebook, and the like, generally have a bad rap as a time waster. But here's an interesting opinion by Eric Qualman. The ROI of social media is that your business will still exist in five years. That's a quotation from Qualman's book, Socialnomics, and ROI, of course, is return on investment. I encountered the ideas in a YouTube video, and they resonated because they were in line with the message that the late marketing guru Ray Junkins was delivering 20 years ago, although not about social media. I mentioned this back in February. Since then, I have bought and read Qualman's book. Qualman is an MBA professor at the Halt International Business School. He has 16 years of experience as an advisor to companies such as Cadillac, but we won't hold that against him, Earthlink, EF Education, Yahoo, TravelZoo, and AT&T. In the 1990s, Ray Junkins, the person I mentioned earlier, was talking about the importance of the Internet, and specifically the web, for businesses. At that time, the web was very new. It started, as you may recall, in 1993, and really didn't have any acceptance until 1994. It's grown a bit since then, though. He cited some figures about the importance of various media. The comparison involved how long it took for 50 million people to use a given technology. Judkins had the first three, which were radio, took 38 years to get 50 million users. Television got to 50 million users in 13 years. The Internet, four years. The iPod had 50 million users in three years. Facebook, three months. And iPod application downloads... Just a few days. One billion apps were downloaded in nine months. The Internet existed as ARPANET starting in the 1960s and didn't become an open network until 1998. So 1998 is the starting year because that's when the general public first had access to it. Likewise, Facebook technically began in 2003 at Harvard, but didn't become generally available until the summer of 2004. It's clear that Facebook and other social media sites are popular, but does your business really need to participate? Well, I remember when many business owners thought it unimportant for their companies to have a website or for their employees to have email addresses. In the 1980s, a business owner who was having a fax machine installed said that he had no idea what he would do with it. The telephone was once considered to be a fad. So were radio and television. Oh, and the guy who had no idea what he would do with the fax machine? Well, he became, within less than a month, the company's most prolific user of the device. The parallel, and what's important about social media, is that today's high school students, college students, and young professionals are comfortable with using the tools. These are the people who are working for you today and will be your company's managers in the future. To put the sheer number of Facebook users in perspective, if Facebook were a country, it would rank third in population behind China and India, with the United States in position number four. 
As Qualman says, we don't have a choice on whether we do social media. The question is how well we do it. And senior managers do seem to be catching on. Qualman reports that 80% of businesses use social media for recruiting new employees, with LinkedIn being the most popular by far. Another indication that social media demographics are changing is the fact that the fastest-growing Facebook segment is for users between 55 and 65 years old, and women are adopting Facebook usage faster than men. How many people do you know who have only a cell phone? Only a cell phone, no landline. Many of these same people have all but abandoned email. Why? It's too slow. Twitter and Facebook are the new email. People use Facebook posts, Twitter tweets, and other social media postings to report excellent products and services. Think of this as word-of-mouth advertising with a million-watt amplifier. Oh, and if people are displeased with your product or service, yeah, they'll use that same high-power amplifier to condemn you. More than one-third of bloggers post opinions about products, services, and brands. Services such as Angie's List make it easy for consumers to rate businesses. The entire communications landscape is in the midst of a gigantic, quiet revolution. Do you know what people are saying about your company or brand online? What are you doing to position yourself, your product, your service, your brand, and your company more positively? Trust in advertising is at an all-time low, even if people see your ads. Do you know any TiVo or DVR users who actually watch the ads when they play back the programs? Newspaper subscription rates are declining faster than ever, and even if people see your ads there, fewer than one in five will believe them. At the same time, word-of-mouth advertising continues to be the most believable kind of advertising that you cannot buy. Social media are about word-of-mouth advertising. Successful companies in social media, says Qualman, act more like Dale Carnegie, unless like the characters on Mad Men, listening first, selling second. So if you own or manage a business, large or small, I strongly recommend picking up Eric Qualman's book. The title again, Socialnomics. Some sad news this week as I note the passing of Karen Kenworthy. Karen Kenworthy wasn't a professional big-name programmer, but she wrote a column, a very popular one, for Windows Magazine during the 1990s. She had a knack for explaining complicated subjects in a way that anyone could understand. As easy as she made it seem, doing that is very hard. And this week, we note her untimely death. Those who subscribe to Karen's newsletter received a message this week from her brother, and I quote that message. I suspected many of you have noticed that the last issue of Karen's Power Tools newsletter was dated March 17, 2010, and you may have been anxiously awaiting another. It is with great sadness that I write to tell you of Karen's death on April 12, 2011, after a long struggle with several debilitations, including diabetes. Mike Elgin remembered Karen's time with Windows Magazine, and I quote him, If you read Windows Magazine in the 1990s, you probably remember Karen Kenworthy. She was a brilliant programmer and columnist and wrote the Karenware series of Windows apps. Many people still use her utilities every day because they were so well-made and useful. Just how could a no-name programmer score a column in one of the most popular magazines of the day? Elgin explains, and I quote him again, We WinMag editors discovered Karen on the Windows Information Exchange, or Wix, message board. This was pre-web time. She was able to answer any question, seemed to know everything, plus she had the rare gift of explaining the complex simply. 
So we gave this amateur columnist her own space in the magazine called Power Windows. She turned out to be one of the best and most professional writers we had ever worked with and won a huge and loyal fan base. Returning to the message from Karen's brother, Bill, I know that Karen touched many of you with her kindness, wit, creativity, and encouragement. She was a loving daughter, sister, aunt, and friend. She was a pretty darn good programmer, too. We are deeply grieving her loss. For now, Karen's server is still running. The programs she has written can still be downloaded, and donations can still be made through the website. And Fred Langa spoke of Karen Kenworthy, saying that she wrote a very popular column for Windows Magazine when he was there, and that she was as good a programmer as she was a wordsmith. I have none but positive memories, Langa says, of working with Karen. Bill Kenworthy says his sister was a longtime supporter of the Donaver Fellowship, a special children's ministry in southern India. You can learn more about them at a link you'll find on the TechBiter Worldwide website. All we ask, says Bill Kenworthy, is that you remember her whenever you take the case off your computer, contemplate removing entries from your Windows registry, listen to Bob Wills or Riders in the Sky, or wave and say hi to anyone on the net. You'll find a link to her obituary on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and if you want, you can leave a message or a remembrance there. In short circuits, I wonder, is there a narwhal in your future? Ubuntu 11.04 has been released as the successor to version 10.10. Ubuntu's numbering system is a little unusual. It uses the year 11 and the month 04, and this tends to inflate the version numbering a bit. And every time I look at a new version of Ubuntu, I wonder why more people aren't using it. Canonical both names and numbers its releases. Natty Narwhal is the latest. The Narwhal, Monodon monoceros, is a medium-sized toothed whale that lives in the Arctic. Males are distinguished by a long, straight helical tusk extending from their upper left jaw. While populations appear stable, the narwhal has been deemed particularly vulnerable to climate change due to a narrow geographical range and a specialized diet. Thanks to Wikipedia for that information. Version 11.04 was released on Thursday, and by Thursday evening I had updated my dual-boot notebook computer, and I had used Wubi to add Natty Narwhal to the netbook computer. The full installation didn't want to work on the netbook for some reason. Wubi is the Windows Ubuntu installer, and it places Ubuntu inside the Windows file system. There's a small speed disadvantage to Wubi but it creates an easy and foolproof installation. If you've been thinking about trying Linux, this would be a very good time to try it. If you're already an Ubuntu user, prepare for some big changes. Starting with this week's release, Ubuntu is no longer based entirely on the desktop manager GNOME. Instead, it uses Unity, and that means the look and feel will change, and change a lot. In addition to the Unity desktop interface, Ubuntu 11.04 will include LibreOffice and the CompIS window manager. Firefox is, of course, the default browser. There will no longer be a separate netbook version, and instead of booting a CD, those who want to give it a try can also do so in the cloud without explicitly downloading or installing anything. This version of Linux looks even more like the Mac, but I haven't worked with it long enough to really offer any firm conclusions. I always caution that if you depend heavily on Microsoft or Adobe products as I do, Ubuntu cannot be your only operating system. 
Canonical provides a free Ubuntu One membership to all users of the operating system, so you automatically have two gigabytes of online storage that you can use to sync files, contacts, bookmarks, and notes between computers. If you're interested, visit the Ubuntu website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I had complained, rather vociferously, that Google's Calendar Sync application didn't work with the 64-bit version of Microsoft Office. And Google's PR folks tried to spin the lack of support by saying, well, it works on 64-bit systems, you just have to use a 32-bit version of Outlook. Well, that was then, this is now. And this week, Google's Jessica Kosit said a few months ago, you had a conversation with my colleague, Victoria Katsarau, about Google Calendar Sync for 64-bit versions of Outlook. Happy to tell you this is live and available for download as of today. So if you have been waiting with as much anticipation as I have, you will be delighted with what you find. Google Calendar Sync indeed now does work with 64-bit Outlook. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. It has been a busy week for Adobe. For the first time I'm aware of, Adobe is releasing a .5 mid-cycle release that contains a lot of new features, not just enhancements and bug fixes. So it'll be a while until I'm able to download, install, digest, and review what all is new. There is a charge for upgrading from CS5 to CS5.5, and I'll let you know if I think the upgrade is worth the fee. In the meantime, Adobe has some free upgrades you'll want for Lightroom and Camera Raw. Lightroom 3.4, Camera Raw 6.4. Those are available for immediate download on Adobe.com. Or if you have automatic updating set for your Adobe products, you may already have them. Or if you don't, you will in the next couple of days. The updates add support for 13 popular camera models, including the Canon EOS Revel T3i, Nikon D5100, and Fuji FinePix X100. They also add more than 25 lens profiles to help photographers automatically correct distortion and chromatic aberration. These updates also correct several bugs reported by customers. Because Adobe encourages users to provide feedback on its applications, the company now has a Get Satisfaction customer community at Photoshop.com. And at that location, customers can provide real-time feedback and requests for the entire Adobe Digital Imaging family of products. There is also a direct link where you can make recommendations and a Facebook presence. You will, of course, find links to those from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Whether you're a pro or an amateur, you'll find something to like in the new Lightroom, which Adobe calls the Essential Digital Photography Workflow Solution. The Photoshop Camera Raw plugin is essential, of course, if you have one of the newest cameras. Both of the updates are available without cost from the Adobe Updates site. And if you haven't yet gotten the download automatically, there is, of course, a link to the Adobe Updates site from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Oh, and if you have already gotten the download from Adobe, there's still a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. It doesn't just, like, automatically go away or something. <laughs> This week, Sony announced that a cracker may have accessed the account records of about 77 million customers. About half of the victims are U.S. residents. The break-in occurred between April 17th and 19th, and the crook could have users' names, addresses, phone numbers, birth dates, passwords, logon IDs, and maybe even credit card numbers, expiration dates, billing address, and transaction records. Oh, boy. 
Sony says there is no evidence that credit card data was taken, but, and I quote, we cannot rule out the possibility. The company is at least being prompt and forthright about the problem, which also affects the Quarosity online music service. Sony quickly took PlayStation Network and Quarosity offline April 19th and expects them to be operational again soon. These kinds of reports, unfortunately, aren't unusual, even though companies have instituted stronger and stronger protections. Sony's online service, which as of this writing is offline, provides movies, TV shows, games, and access to a 3D virtual world called PlayStation Home. Although Sony announced the problem on Wednesday, it wasn't until the following Tuesday that they admitted customer data had been compromised. Connecticut Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal has demanded that Sony provide users with more complete information about the incident. Sony plans to send email messages to all 77 million potential victims, but Sony says the number of messages required means it'll take quite some time to get them all out. Really? The average spammer is able to send that many messages in a single day. Come on, Sony. Hire one of those spammers to send your messages. Sony is still trying to determine what it could do to compensate affected customers. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.